Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. I've done nearly 600 of them now. Uh, if this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, please go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and look under the past interviews menu. This program is made possible through the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. So if you appreciate it and would like to help support it, there's a PayPal button on every page of the website, and there's also a page about other ways to donate if you don't want to use PayPal. My guest today is Teresa Chung. Welcome, Teresa. Hello, Rick. Hello. Hello. Teresa's in the UK. She says she lives near Windsor Castle, which is not entirely relevant to this interview, but anyway, <laughs> something she told me. <laughs> given the weekend. <laughs> yeah, true. She said she did an interview yesterday with some uh, outfit in Australia, Australia, right? And they wanted to know about Harry and Meghan the whole time. <laughs> yes. Asked me to be their royal correspondent. <laughs> yeah. Maybe you missed your calling. Anyway, Teresa was born into a family of spiritualists. She'll explain what that means. She has a master's degree from King's College, Cambridge, and has written numerous best-selling dream, afterlife, angel, ritual, and spiritual books and encyclopedias, including two Sunday Times top 10 bestsellers. She's been a guest on Russell Brand's Under the Skin, which I listened to the other day. That was pretty funny. It must be hard <laughs> being interviewed by him. <laughs> He's like bouncing off I the walls. The two of us were bad. It was terrible. <laughs> yeah, I've listened to a lot of his podcasts. He's a very funny guy. And also on Coast to Coast AM and featured in numerous newspapers and media. And the titles of some of your books are The Truth About Angels, Dream Dictionary A to Z, Premonition Code, The Afterlife is Real, The Sensitive Soul. So where would you like to start? I'll let you decide among all the things we're going to talk about. Where would you like to start? At the beginning. All right, let's start why there. Yes. Th you want to know why I do sure. this? Sure. Well, How did you I get into all this? I was kind of born into it. My mother was a professional astrologer, medium. That's what our family was like. You know, I grew up believing everybody could talk to dead people or consult tarot cards or whatever. And then somehow I was blessed to get a place at King's College, Cambridge to read theology because I'm interested in spirituality and of course when I went to Cambridge I realized that not everybody talks to dead people or believes in astrology and crystals and all that. I hate that word journey but it has been a lifelong journey now of trying to understand the spiritual, the esoteric and writing many many books about it and all of my books actually if you go back in time because I've been doing this 20 years as I said I've been blessed I've been with all the publishers writing about this. I can see it's me trying to actually learn mm -hmm. along the way. Yeah. You know, my intuitive understanding of it, because it's what I'm born into, and my doubt has played a huge part in it as well. Because I do actually, the place I'm at now, which is really interesting, is, is doubting a lot and thinking, well, don't believe everything because you're told it. You know, I'm alarmed at the moment in the world how many people are so very gullible and willing to follow so easily. So that's where I am. That's why my latest book, The Truth About Angels, actually looks at this. What is going on in the new age movement at the moment? All these gurus we have everywhere, all these people. And um, I'm looking into that. So as you can see, I'm a serial writer, a serial spiritual writer. In some ways, I was looking at you actually before I did this interview. You have interviewed so many people and you've kind of got to a place, you said, where you don't feel you belong anywhere now. You're too much of a rebel to be. I read that somewhere that you felt that you were a kind of a, a rebel and you had your own individualistic view now of spirituality. Kind of. 
I found that interesting. Yeah, I don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I respect all kinds of authorities or traditions and whatnot. You know, like you were saying about doubt, there's a famous quote from the Buddha where he says, you know, don't believe anything just because somebody says it. Even if I say it, the Buddha is saying, check it out with your own thought processes, with your own discrimination and determine what veracity it may have. He didn't use those words, but that kind of a point. I think that spirituality should be a scientific enterprise. I think that a scientific way of thinking is extremely helpful to a spiritual aspirant. And I also think that spirituality has things to offer science that science will be very impoverished without. And I know that you're very interested in that, and you've been involved with uh, folks at um, IANS, and, mm-hmm. um, Institute of Noetic Sciences and so on. Well, I actually co-authored with Dr. Julia Mossbridge when she was still a scientist at IONS. I now th- believe she's a fellow and has moved on. And, yeah, I um, met Julia. She, she did a heart math test on me one time. <laughs> <laughs> She's a force, isn't yeah. she? And it was wonderful, that book, actually, I did, because I, as I said, I'd written book after book after spiritual topics, but I wrote about them from a believer's perspective. A lot of my books were collecting true experiences of people who've had near-death experiences, afterlife science, precognition, and I wasn't aware of the science out there. I mean, I was creating all these books for the converted, if you were, And it was only when I stumbled across the Institute of Noetic Sciences about six years ago that it blew my mind that there were scientists out there looking at the inner world in the same way as the external world and analyzing it as data. And I have stalked them ever since. And they actually very kindly awarded my readers a landing page because I talk about them so much now so that if you've read a Teresa Chung book like The Afterlife is Real or An Angel Called My Name, that was my Sunday Times top 10, which is people who believe in angels. And if you've read this and you want to learn more about the science, go to this landing page and there's three free gifts from the Institute of Noetic Sciences on there, like a chapter of Dean's book, Dean Radin. you know, a lecture, Dean Radin. He did the forward to the premonition code for myself and Julia, which was wonderful. And that book, to go back to that book, was wonderful because you had someone like me who the scientific community would probably think they're there, laugh at me in a way because I come at it from a very... You sort of, um, I lived it, I was born into it, and here are stories, non-scientific, collaborating with someone like Dr. Julia Mossbridge. And we created this rather strange book, but which has now got a kind of a cult following of its own called The Premonition Code, where I'm going through the book. I do feel a bit like the comic relief in the book, going, but Julia, I don't understand. (laughs) Tell me about the physics. And she's sort of like saying... Okay, Teresa, here we go and explain it. And she's created this sort of scientific system to test precognitives. But what she needed for that book was my database because maybe because I'm accessible, I don't know, or because I've simply been around so long, people, you know, have got a Teresa Chung book, especially in the UK, if you're interested in the paranormal. They write to me. I leave my email address in all my books. So I've got this database of stories of people who have experienced precognition or intuition or afterlife encounters Um, and um, that played into the book as well so it was a wonderful combination of science meets spirit actually happening together and that book's now been translated in so many languages we had a website um, it made the front page of the daily mail over here Unbelievable. I went on to Russell Brand to talk about it. So it was a wonderful collaboration. But since then, I've still continued to stalk the Institute of Noetic Sciences and I'm still in regular touch with them. And I really enjoy that. I've had all of them on my podcast talking to me Arnold DeLorme, Helena, Gareth Yount, the whole team. 
Dean, of yeah. course, Miss Dean. Yes, yes. I think if there was a movie about a scientist, they would have to cast Dean. <laughs> He's just how you would imagine a, a scientist studying the paranormal to be like. But he was terrific fun on my podcast. Yeah, great. He's actually he has such a sense of humor, sense of actually. Yes, yeah. So they're all on my podcast, and that formed the basis of season one of my podcast was my interviews with all these scientists. But I also had Penny Sartori on there, and even Alexander, who is become a kind of friend i met him when he came to the uk we had a coffee together and uh he was fascinating to listen to as well on the podcast um he talked about his near-death experience and then since then i've just gone on to do more and more interviews with practitioners experts authors on my podcast yeah that's great i listened to a few episodes of it uh it's called white shores is that what it's called and you know why it's called lord of the rings oh really i forget that reference ian mckellen as Gandalf, I think it's I think it's in the second or third. I can't remember. I'm not that. But basically, the hobbits think they're going to die because the orcs are attacking, and he says, "I fear death." And Gandalf turns to him, "So you needn't fear it, because." And then he has this beautiful speech. It's on YouTube. Any Lord of the Free, and he says, "It's White Shores. It's a far green country under a different sunrise." And he says, "Well, that's not so bad, is it?" You know, he's comforting that there is life after death. And it's called White Shores. And, of course, that beautiful scene at the end when Frodo goes off in the boat. I love Lord of the Rings. And um, so (laughs) it was my kind of tribute to that. In the first episode, it was great fun because I asked all the scientists if they could be a character in Lord of the Rings, which one would it be? Guess which one the most of them chose. (laughs) Uh, Probably Gandalf. Yeah. Yeah. Some of them chose the ring. Oh, the ring itself. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) In a way, what I'm trying to do, because we do talk about really sort of paranormal topics, science of consciousness, but to do that in that lighthearted way seems to have worked because the podcast has proved quite popular, probably because it is so surreal when you listen to it. That's nice. Your Lord <laughs> of the Rings reference reminded me of a scene from Star Wars where um, Obi-Wan Kenobi is fighting Darth Vader and he says to Darth Vader, if you strike me down, I shall become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. And then he ends up getting struck down. But then, you know, he's kind of working from the other side after that. But you see movies, these iconic movies like Star Wars and Lord of the Rings, I firmly believe the reason they have touched so many lives is the underlying spirituality. It's a way to teach these spiritual lessons in a way that wouldn't maybe necessarily reach people with the earnest podcasts or books. And I had this idea, actually, and that's how I ended up talking to Piers Morgan because I had this idea, the force in Star Wars, and I teamed up with the head of the Jedi Church to write a book called Become the Force. And that was an interesting project. I mean, it's, I'm not an obsessive Star Wars fan. I just thought all those people queuing up in the theatre to see Star Wars, what they're queuing up for really isn't the special effects and all that and the actors. It's the spiritual theme, the force. We all understand what that is. So that was an interesting project to work on as well. As I see, I'm trying very different ways to bring spirituality out of just talking to the converted all the time. I really love also engaging with skeptics. That's why I went on Russell Brand. You know, he's not a skeptic. He is actually very spiritually inclined. But that's a fun episode to listen to because you've got him going, what? (laughs) When I'm talking about life after death and all that. Michael Marshall, who's a well-known Guardian critic, skeptic over here, I've sparred with him. And uh, I love doing that because it 
I'm not trying to convert anyone, but I'm just trying to talk to people who normally wouldn't engage in spirituality because I do all the festivals and the talks and everything. But nine times out of 10, the people who listen are inclined to believe anyway. And I think it's really interesting when people from totally different backgrounds, that's why I love the premonition code with Julia, you had a scientist, a neuroscientist with a general spiritual writer. It was interesting mix. And I, I like that. I like pushing the boundaries, if you were, in a way, and getting dialogue about these issues about what's the meaning of life? Why are we here? Yeah. Well, as you know, there are many scientists who aren't really scientific, as Dean often discusses, and David Lorimer, you know, with the Galileo Commission and people like that, that, you know, they, they basically have the attitude, well, you say you've got all this data about premonition or life after death or whatever, but that can't be true. Therefore, I'm not going to look at it. Now, that's not a scientific attitude. To my way of thinking, anything could be a, a viable hypothesis to investigate. Angels, for instance, and you're, you're going to talk about angels today. Do mm -hmm. they exist? Well, you may doubt it, you may believe it, but you don't really know, and you can investigate it. And maybe there's some evidence that ought to be looked at. A couple hundred years from now, maybe people look back and think it was ridiculous that there was this schism between science and spirituality. There's just reality and both bring different tools to the table for exploring it. Absolutely. It's part of the human experience. Since man, woman began, people have had these supernatural, these supernormal experiences. And they're part of the human experience. Why on earth deny them? I'm very much, I don't know the reason for them, but why not study them? Why not understand them? I don't think also you should put people on a pedestal who have these powers or these visions. I don't believe that either. How's that going to help you? I think it should be all about your direct personal experience and that activating that angel gene within you rather than following someone who says, I've seen angels. And that's what my latest book is about. It's about, you know, if you want to see angels, start behaving like one, start activating <laughs> it. Look in the mirror and smile at yourself with eyes of true love because most people struggle to love themselves. That's where you start with a bit of self-love and grow your own wings. And that's what I like to see more of at the end as I move towards the latter part, the twilight part of my writing career, because I really am a serial writer. You know, you have serial killers, but I'm a serial writer. I've written so many spiritual books now. It's a blessing to be in that position. The pandemic. Teresa, um, the scripter. COVID, Instead of Jack the Ripper, you got Teresa the Scripter. <laughs> right, that's my new tagline. <laughs> but, you know, what COVID, the pandemic, has done in a way, it's kind of unleashed me in a way because I was getting ready to wind down. And then suddenly in early 2020, I got these major companies like, you know, over here, Beauty Bay or Anthropology, the clothing store, suddenly saying, look, everybody's dreaming right, because of lockdown, the furloughs. Can you explain? Can you help what's going on? And for me, in a way, that was like, oh, my goodness, because for me, dreams are the door to the unconscious. They're the first step, the opening, the beginning. Most people who are irrational or logical or discount spirituality, they're still interested in their dreams because they have them. My husband, for example, he's very logical and rational, but he's very interested in dream interpretation because he gets that. So what I found I was able to do through all these requests to go on radio, TV or whatever to talk about the meaning of the most common dreams was actually to get people to think spiritually and to think beneath the material, beneath the surface. For example, if you dream you're falling, are you unsupported in your life? What is your unconscious, your intuition trying to tell you? And you get people thinking like that, that opens the door. 
And then you can start bringing in other concepts and other ones. And, and it's been incredible 2020, actually, the interest in spirituality. But I guess that tends to happen in times of crisis, that people do seek deeper meaning, because we're talking life and death here. So we're seeking deeper meaning. I think there might be something else going on, too. I noticed I started dreaming more when the pandemic set in, and I wasn't radically changing my lifestyle, since I'm not like a social gadfly anyway. But um, I... Uh, then I heard a story about it on, on the news. So they were asking some doctor about it. And she said, well, it's just because people are sleeping more, therefore they're dreaming more. But I think there's something more to it, which I, I think perhaps there's some kind of enlivenment of the field, of the force, if you will, taking place in the world. And that's kind of stirring things up for people more, and therefore they're dreaming more. What do you think about that? Well, I think it's your intuition, your internal therapist, your intuition, it's in the name, speaking to you and trying to help because the part of you that wants to help and heal because it's been so chaotic filled with grief and loss last year and what it's doing is it through this awakening of dreaming it's called the lockdown dream phenomenon i've been asked so many times about it and yes there is a biological reason people's sleeping patterns have altered and of course when that happens if you have altered sleeping patterns, it's not that you're sleeping more. It's often the altered sleeping patterns. That's why you tend to dream more on holiday because you're a bit jet lagged and you get more REM, rapid eye movement sleep. Also, our mornings have slowed down. Instead of rushing off to work or your chores, you're at home. So you have longer for these images to come to your consciousness and recall them. There are biological, rational reasons, but I think there's a deeply spiritual reason. Everybody dreams. Whatever your age, your race, your culture, your political belief. Whatever your species. It's, I mean, even dogs dream. You can see them kicking their legs and making little noises. Absolutely. But it's, they illustrate, dreams illustrate our shared humanity. And isn't that what we need to be reminded of right now? That we are all shared humanity. We all share this consciousness. And I think that's why dreams came to the fore. It's a powerful spiritual wake-up call. We are all linked. Whoever you are, you're going to dream. But also it's connecting you to that part of yourself which knows the bigger picture of your life, which has your best interests at heart. And I think in the modern world, we've dis disengaged from that unconscious, intuitive part of ourself because our lives are so busy, so fast, so much materialism, so much passive consumption of what's on our phones and in the media that we switched off that inner guide but the pandemic forced us all back in onto it and it expressed itself through dreams and of course right now dreams are never more at this because netflix number one over here is that um paranormal uh thriller behind her eyes which i don't know if it's over there in the states but it's absolutely huge over here and it's all about lucid dreaming and it's just like people have just gone so much interest into it, what's going on, because it's a psychological thriller, but it takes lucid dreaming as the doorway, going into your dream. And it's just, I'm sure, it, I'm sure it was a New York, New York Times bestseller. So I'm sure it will, you know, <laughs> it will, it'll, um, it'll, it'll be over there on Netflix, too. And uh, so many people, it's a big talking point online behind her eyes. Hmm. Behind her eyes, yeah. Irene. She says the great series on Netflix. We, we sort of, we dark, have an erratic right? Netflix subscription and we unsubscribe okay. and resubscribe. It's very dark, Rick. So I wouldn't advise it because, but that's what I try to do to remove the fear and woo out uh -huh. of the supernormal. If you want a really positive recent edition is of course the Disney Pixar movie. Soul. Oh, I've heard that's great. Yeah. 
heaven. And I, in 2019, I interviewed Dr. Lauren Carpenter, who is an IONS fellow, and um, he was co-founder of Pixar and a science director at Disney before he became an IONS fellow. So it did not surprise me at all that Disney was going to serve up the afterlife and a near-death experience for children in animation because of talking to Dr. Lauren Carpenter. And this is, you know, the co-founder of Pixar. There's so many spiritual concepts, actually, in Disney movies, yeah. if you look at it. Yeah. Well, if you think about it, a lot of people in, are talking about some kind of spiritual awakening taking place in the world, you know, on a global scale. And some of them have rather strange interpretations of how it's supposed to play out. But, you know, people have been talking about this for a long time and anticipating it. You know, maybe it's really kicking in now. If anybody's ever been on a spiritual retreat, you you probably experienced that there your dreams intensified incredibly, uh, had all kinds of vivid dreams, um, profound things. So the whole world is, to a certain extent, on a spiritual retreat now, if you want to call it that, or on a retreat, whether you make it spiritual or not, I guess is another matter. But there's definitely an enlightenment taking place, I think, in global consciousness, and it's impacting everyone's psychology, the way we function in our dreams. You might say that we're more open during our dreams, during sleep, than we are in the waking state, generally. And so, naturally, we might notice more profound things happening during sleep than in the waking state. More likelihood. Well, we're meeting ourselves in our dreams. We're understanding, and that's the goal of therapy, counseling, actually. The goal of a good therapist and counselor is to get you to understand yourself better. And I think that's the journey of our lives is self-understanding. But we do that every night in our sleep. We're going into this symbolic world where everything's represented symbolically. And we're understanding aspects of our own personality. As I say, it's like the movie references will come in with me. That's what I'm like. I'm a real movie buff. Inception, of course. You know, when you everybody stops and stares at the dreamer, right? Is that with Leonardo <laughs> you know, DiCaprio? It is, yeah, of okay. course. I also follow Leonardo DiCaprio as well as Ions. <laughs> that's what I love, these big movies. They can awaken interest in these concepts in such a way. I hope once the pandemic, it, we, we will go back to a sort of normal. I really hope that this love affair the world has had with their dreams won't go away and people will keep recording and recalling their dreams and look at their dreams. as an, I, I do think it's extremely powerful. If anyone gets anything out of the interview, this interview, please don't think your dreams are nonsense and random. Write them down and look at what the dreams are trying to tell you. And don't just think one dream has a message. Often it's a series of dreams, a bit like Netflix series. You know, you've got to look at them all and see what you are trying to tell yourself, your intuition is trying to tell you. But there is a category of dreams also, a very rare category, which I believe have psychic elements because I get so much mail about it or precognitive, and that's another area which suggests there's so much within us that we have no idea about. And would you say there's a category of dreams that aren't really dreams? For me, the most profound experiences I've ever had in my life have been during sleep, just counting on the fingers of one hand. You know, And I've been meditating for 53 years, but some really profound things. But they didn't seem like dreams because they were just so significant and profound and intense and uh, whatnot. Irene, too, she's saying over there. So probably because of the innocence and the openness of the condition you're in when you're asleep, you can be receptive to levels of cognition or experience that you are not so receptive to, even in a meditative state, when you're awake. 
Well, your conscious mind is so controlling, isn't it? And it won't allow the intuition to surface. But of course, when you sleep, your intuition reigns. It has free reign to express itself. Yes. And I call these rare kind of dreams night vision. They're marked often because most of our dreams, I would say about 99% are symbolic. They're just as valuable because they're all really helpful messages where your dreamy mind expresses itself through symbols and metaphors, but personal symbols and metaphors that you've got to learn the language of. I always say when you dream, it's like going to another country. And if you want to understand the culture, you need to understand the language. So you need to go on a crash course of understanding your personal symbols like A cat, for example, if you dream of a cat, everybody has a different personal relationship with cats. Some people love them, some people not so much. So you've got to interpret dreams, not so much from the universal interpretation, but from your personal one. And that's where often a lot of people fall down. They think, oh, I dreamt of this and it's going to mean X, Y and Z. But also just a little bit more before we go into the the rare kind of dreams, the symbolic dreams also often tend to have a lot of fear in them. And people say, well, why is that? And that's because the dreaming mind wants to get its message across. And sometimes being gentle and giving you nice dreams on a holiday in Hawaii, it is not enough. Sadly, it's like being cruel to be kind. Sometimes nightmares and fear will come in. For example, if you're being chased in your dream, what are you running away from? What aspect of yourself do you need to turn around and deal with and all that? And also, if you have a dream of death, a lot of people have dreams of death. And this is where the symbolic interpretation is so important if you dream of someone dying that you know it does not mean to say they're going to die you've got to look at the symbolism death is an ending but a new beginning so perhaps your relationship with that person is going through a transformation but to go back to what you were talking about night vision which i believe is a small category there is a difference symbolic dreams tend to be a bit like a music video a lot of shifting images doesn't really make sense But night vision, it tends to have a beginning, a middle end, feel very vivid and realistic. And I think that's like a door to somewhere. If you believe in the spirit, the afterlife, the unseen realm, it's a door that you're going to there. And I have had a few of these night visions in my life. And my goodness, um, they typically tend to be when I meet departed loved ones and I have a very vivid, realistic conversation with them. And when I wake up, it's like I have talked to them. It felt so, so real. And I, I did a lot of research into this. And I actually found that the research shows that in 90, over 90 percent of cases, people who dream of departed loved ones do recover better with the grief. It's a very healing thing to happen as well. But I call them afterlife signs, afterlife visit, visitations. And I think these experiences should be studied. I just, you know tempted to tell you some of my night visions, but I don't want to talk about me too much. Oh, no, please do. No, please do. That, that's, that's, I'd love to hear. Tell me, right. please. Well, I'll start with the most profound one, and we'll see if I get into any of the others. But the most profound one, I was um, asleep, my body was, and I was ushered into a room, and I was asked to lie down on my stomach on a pallet of some sort and hang on to a couple of handles at shoulder height, like, and some being came in with a trident or a spear and started stabbing up and down my spine, like stabbing, and it was the most excruciating, intense thing I'd ever experienced. And I'm su- I'm summarizing here. And when I woke up from it, I woke up like kind of in a sweat, but 
feeling as I gained more ordinary consciousness, the greatest bliss and sense of liberation I had ever felt, like as if I had been bound by steel bands for all of eternity and they had been broken. And I just walked around in a state of awe for several days because I felt so transformed by that. And then I later discovered, just a few years ago, that this was like back in 1980, this happened. I later discovered that Tibetan Buddhism or something has a practice where you're supposed to imagine Lord Shiva stabbing your chakras with his trident. And I think maybe somebody had that experience that I had and then tried to reverse engineer it into a practice. So that was one of them. Incredible. It it was like if I've had any significant awakening in my life, that was the biggest one. Did you know about this ceremony before this practice? I I just heard about the dream happened in 1980 or so, and I just heard about this thing a couple of years ago. There was some such tradition. I mean, that is such an incredible scenario to just come out of nowhere. And the fact that you felt bliss on wakening. But Utterly transformed. Was, it's basically the darkness before the dawn. It's the pain before birth. It's a huge release. What you were, yeah. Yes. As I always say in my books, you don't go to heaven. You grow to heaven. Growth hurts. And the only way to grow is out of your comfort zone. I'll tell you another one quickly. The experience was just complete unboundedness, you know, just unbounded awareness. And then gradually, gradually, a thought started coming, and I started thinking, holy mackerel, I am having one heck of a meditation. I don't even remember starting to meditate. Oh, this is beautiful. And then I kind of experienced I was sitting in lotus. I became aware of my body. I was sitting up in lotus having this meditation, this unbounded awareness. Again, summarizing, I realized I'm fast asleep. I'm lying on the bed. This whole thing was happening just sort of... So you became lucid, yeah. so you knew you were dreaming. That's lucid dream. You knew you were dreaming when you're dreaming. That's a wonderful skill yeah. that you can learn. Have you practiced lucid dreaming techniques? Of, no, you know, I are... haven't ever practiced. It just comes or it doesn't. Wouldn't you want to? Yeah. Though? Wouldn't you want to wake up in that dreamland state? You can role play. You can be anywhere. You can go up to space. You can fly. You can visit oh, any yeah. country. Well, I remember when I read the Have Carlos Castaneda books, Don Juan told them to try to see your hands in your dreams. As so I thought, all right, I'm going to try to do that. And eventually I actually, I'm dreaming. Okay, I want to see my hands. Yep, did it. And <laughs> then after that, I just didn't keep messing with it. With me, that's my next big journey, lucid dreaming, because I've written so many dream dictionaries and encyclopedias now. And um, that's where I want to go now. And I'm learning techniques and potentially writing a, another book about it, actually, because there's so much interest yeah, in it. Yeah. How do you do it? How do you become lucid in your dream? Because... Actually, we do need it at the moment because the way our waking life is not great at the moment for a lot of people. So let's go and explore and have fun in our dreams. So many of us limit ourselves in our dreams. We have these dreams, either they're boring or they're not very pleasant or whatever. But actually, you can make your dream life wildly exciting. Oh, yeah. You can role play. You can be or do anyone and anything. And I'm telling you, when people are able to control their dreams become lucid in their dreams, the confidence boost it gives you. I've had one or two times in my life, maybe three, where I have been aware that I'm dreaming and I've controlled the dream. I can tell you the next morning I'm just flying. Literally, you know, I, 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 the world, I feel I can do anything. And often it's before something amazing happens in my waking life. Because what we don't realize also is our dreams are a commentary on our waking life. It's just a continuation. And if you want your dreams to be more exciting, if you want creative ideas for the next novel or your next project to come in your dreams, as many great 
geniuses have actually had inspiration from their dreams. You know, the plot of Frankenstein, for example, was oh, a yeah. dream. I read that um, section you know, in your book, you know, Paul yeah. McCartney and all kinds of other people have had, he dreamed the, the song yesterday. And yeah, all kinds of yes, stuff. Christopher Nolan, the director, he's, he's a very much of a lucid dreamer. But what I'm saying, if you want to have more interesting creative dreams, it starts in your waking life. Become more mindful, become more curious in your waking life. A lot of us go through life with our blinkers on in a, in a kind of like a routine if you could actually treat each day as the precious gift it is, full of wonder and awe, that's not always easy because life can be tough. But if you can become more curious about everything in your waking life, that's going to have a knock-on effect on your dreaming. And there are certain techniques you can do during the day to increase the likelihood of becoming lucid in your dream. One of them is on the hour or every two hours saying, am I awake? Am I asleep? Like right now, maybe I'm dreaming I'm having this conversation with you, Rick, but no, I'm awake. That hurts. <laughs> so keep asking you that because the thing is that what you do in your waking life will somehow carry over in the dream. And eventually you'll be in a dream and you'll be asking yourself, am I awake or am I asleep? And then when you know you're asleep, ah, oh, you can do anything. It's amazing. Yeah. You know, <laughs> dreaming is considered both, I think, by moderns and by ancients as one of three are three ordinary states of consciousness waking dreaming and sleeping right and in the vedic tradition they identify they define a state which they call fourth which they call turiya turiya means fourth and the idea is that if one becomes aware of the field of pure consciousness which is one's one's own essential nature to a sufficient degree such that it's no longer overshadowed by anything it becomes a continuum throughout the other three states, waking, dreaming, and sleeping. So that's an interesting consideration. It's like the movie screen, you know, it's always there no matter mm. how the movies change. So it's really, a, we could say, almost a fifth state of consciousness where the fourth state becomes a permanent feature of life throughout the other three, 24-7. Yes, yes. Interesting to throw in there. Fascinating. No. Yeah, I mean, I have, I I have friends who say they haven't slept in decades, although they've slept. They snore, they sleep, but pure consciousness remains fully illuminated throughout the 24-hour period, including okay. deep sleep. Well, that's, well, that's true for all of us, but for some reason we don't recall. Right, it's there. It I, just gets I think, blotted I think out, all, but it can be I mean, enlivened a, to, the, to the extent that it can no longer be blotted out or overshadowed by the depth of sleep. Okay, but I, I do think that everybody, when, when they're asleep, they are their consciousness is going places. And I, I find it very interesting, actually, people who write to me and say, I don't recall my dreams. I don't remember. I don't recall. And there's, I think there's a whole psychology there about what's going on, about why is it that you don't want to understand yourself at that deep level. Don't want you know, to, or is be... it just that people are kind of dulled out? There's not enough clarity think... to remember the dreams. Well, that's, that's why so many more people are dreaming right now, because life has got a bit simpler especially if you're on a furlough, you're at home. I mean, when life is in full swing, there's too much stress. Immediately when you wake up, your unconscious is too gentle. It can't compete. So sometimes it's stress and being way too busy. Or if you're someone who has a, a really, really active waking life, that's fulfilling you. Maybe, <laughs> you know, when you sleep, you just do want to switch off. I mean, there is a psychology behind it. Or you're a very rational and logical person who doesn't really feel comfortable with talking about what is irrational, who doesn't really want to suspend disbelief. So there's all sorts of reasons for it. 
not having dream recall. And I, but I, I love working with people who say they don't remember their dreams because usually after a week or two with me working with them or setting them exercises, they dream. You know what happens to me sometimes, not all the time, but is, is maybe once a year this happens to me. I'll suddenly remember a dream that I had 30 or 40 years ago. And I hadn't remembered it then, but all of a sudden, boom, it comes to mind. I think, oh, yeah, that dream isn't that interesting. And then I go on with my day, but it just comes up. Yeah, what's the lesson there? What does, what's your dreaming mind? What's your intuitions trying to tell you something? As I say, it's your internal therapist and much cheaper than a real one. <laughs> We've all got this resource, and I wish we would all connect with it more and fall in love with our dreams. I hope we continue this love affair with our dreams that has happened in 2020. Dreams are huge at the moment. Yeah, I think they're a blast. I mean, I look forward to going to sleep every night because not only is sleep blissful in its nature, but it's entertaining. I'll wake up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom or something and I'll just chuckle about what I've been dreaming. Oh, because there's no limits in dreams. You can actually, you know, in, in waking life, we have restraints, we have norms of society or whatever. But in dreams, there are no limits. Yeah, yeah. Other people are frightened about that. But it wasn't the Dalai Lama, correct me if I'm wrong, who said that the best meditation is sleep. I'm sure he said that. And what happens when you sleep? You dream. Somehow that triggered the Hamlet soliloquy there. To be or not to be, that is the question, whether it is nobler in the oh, mind. Yes. Of and then to sleep, to dream. Ah, there's to the rub. Sleep, what dreams dream. may come. Yeah, dreams can fuel our waking life. As I say, they can help you understand yourself better. You can role play scenarios. You can actually face the worst case scenario in your sleep. For example, you know, there are things many of us fear, like being attacked or dying or being lost or unprepared, you know, that classic thing of being late, for example. And what your dreaming mind does, it takes you to that worst place scenario. And there's this like, you know, in the self-help movement, you've got to imagine the worst case. Most of us won't allow us to imagine that, especially if you're a perfectionist or successful person. You won't allow yourself to be that unprepared or to walk around nude in public. I've had that one. You know, people forget. <laughs> Your dreaming mind takes you there. So the worst thing has possibly happened. You have exposed yourself in public. You have forgotten your lines on stage. You have messed every single thing up. And it's okay because you've still woken up the next morning. It's a memory. It's gone. It's in the past. You've been there. You've done that. You've got it out of your system. You know, another um, one that I had for years that a lot of people say they have is you're in high school or something and you suddenly realize there was some class that you were supposed to have been attending and you'd totally forgotten about it. Now it's the end of the year and you've forgotten it. Now you're going to flunk this class because you forgot to go to it. Did you ever have that one? Oh, yeah. Well, well school-themed dreams are among the top five most common, actually. There's, you know, a certain and, – and the reason is in school, it's when we are forming. It's such a formative time in our life. Like it or loathe it, it's when we meet people or get influences that, that you know, create our personality. It's the school that forms our, and most of our lives actually are spent working out issues that we had at school or in our childhood, trying to really understand what we think or not what others do. So that's why we have school, school themed dreams. And being late for an exam shows testing situations and not feeling you're up to it. A lot of people suffer from imposter syndrome or whatever and think, am I up for it? And your dreamy mind is just expressing all this for you. So you cathartically can get it out of your system. Yeah. Another one I've had a lot over the years is I'm swimming underwater and it's, that's nice, but I can breathe. And, and I think to myself, wow, I'm underwater, but I can breathe. Isn't that interesting? That's a beautiful dream. Water, of course, is a universal symbol of emotion. And a lot of people actually 
they're underwater, but they're drowning. Mm. Yeah, I don't the get fact that, that you can breathe suggests that your emotions, you could, you are emotional management is an important part of life. You are managing it. You're okay. You're not being submerged by emotions. You are navigating them. I'd be more worried about that dream if you were drowning and, and couldn't breathe. But that's a beautiful dream, showing the sea of emotions you're swimming through, your own emotions and other people's, and you're understanding it. You're being a natural psychologist. That's what that dream would express to me. <laughs> For some reason, I'm into telling you all my dreams now. I guess this is the time to do it. Everybody does. It's great. I've been on. I've done so much radio and TV recently, and uh, and um, I'm actually started a, a podcast with a Sky presenter called Alex Morgan. Actually, I'll talk about that. And we've got some over here in the UK. It's not US celebrities, but UK celebrities who are coming on, and it's a bit like an interview. But then they share a dream, and then they wheel me on as the dream catcher, and I usually get, and then it gets really deep really deep. We had a politician talking about being in an opera and not understanding the words. That's so deep. People will reveal, because the thing is with celebrities, they have this mask on, but then they think it's okay to share a funny dream about being nude or their ex chasing them. You can go right in with the psychology there, and but you can do it in a, in a really safe way. It's doing really well, actually. It's, a, it's, it's called In Your Dreams. It's kind of an interview, but we go deep with a dream. And I think, what a wonderful development. This would never have happened 5, 10, 15 years ago, especially here in the UK, which does tend to be quite cynical. And here we are in mainstream talking about dreams and taking them seriously. I mean, I just feel my, my work is done. <laughs> I'm so pleased because what we're doing there is 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 spirituality it's understanding ourselves from the inside out yeah here's one that's another one that's kind of here's one where some egotism comes into the dream i'll have a dream where i'm levitating or flying or something like that and i think that's cool but at the same time i think oh is anybody watching they can is anybody seeing that i can do this you know <laughs> <laughs> well that's good because every i mean dreams are a hall of mirrors most of them most of them are a hall of mirrors. You're dreaming yourself. And, you know, levitating, you don't take yourself too seriously. You're rising above the situation. And also, I, you know, you've done so many of these amazing interviews, by the way. I'm so glad. And I'm, I'm actually really grateful to Tim Freak. Yes. I always laugh Tim. when I say that name. <laughs> um, That's where I first um, discovered you, know, you was listening to his podcast. Because oh, yes. I listen to so it regularly. Oh, he's great, yeah. isn't he? So thank you, Tim, for connecting me. And I absolutely, I'm going to recommend it everywhere now, this podcast. But you've interviewed so many people that in a way you must get a sense now. I know what this person's going to say before they do. But do you feel that you're at that point now? I mean, what is it, 600 interviews? Nearly. Wow. Yeah. You're like a sponge. You've taken it all on board. And, and um, there's a point now when you think, is there anything new that I'm going to hear? And I think that's what that dream's about. <laughs> huh. Well, I never get bored. Everything seems new and fresh. And each new guest is like opening a Christmas present or something, and you don't know what you're going to get. And uh, I really enjoy, you know, each week preparing for the guest for a week and listening to their stuff and reading their books. And it's, it's, it's you know, certainly they're repeating themes. And we actually have a categorical index on BatGap where we – cluster people into categories so you can see all the oh gosh the, what were you going to put oh me i don't know <laughs> <laughs> that shit crazy, is that yeah, we'll, we'll start a special <laughs> category for you 
I love it. It's it's kind of like everything in my life led up to doing this. It's the best job in the world. Yeah, really, somebody else it? said that to me just the other day. It was a, a brain surgeon in the in Dubai or someplace said, "Oh, you got the best job in the world." Well, it is. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because you never know what you're going to stumble across. Yeah. It's a wonderful platform. I'm going to take this opportunity to thank you as well. Oh, you're welcome. Yes, it makes it accessible and gathers together names that you maybe wouldn't find out otherwise. That's part of our mission, actually, is not just to interview well-known people, but to interview people who are just leading ordinary lives, but have had some significant spiritual awakening. And that was part of the initial motivation for starting this, is that I was talking to friends around town, and some of them were having spiritual awakenings, and then other friends didn't believe it because they just seemed like ordinary people. And so, you know, how could they have a spiritual awakening? They're not floating two feet off the ground. So I just wanted to kind of showcase such people so people would realize that it's possible for me too. If it can happen to Joe Schmo over here, I can do it. Sorry, I have this habit of talking too much. So. Me too, me too. <laughs> I mean, flashes a sign to me during interviews, usually every time you're talking too much. What I loved about this, and I was so excited to be asked, is that you put the emphasis on ordinary because I have been invited onto certain podcasts or whatever and i've actually sometimes declined because they build the person like this extraordinary yeah, awakened soul <laughs> and i can't go there i maybe i do suffer from imposter syndrome i consider myself very ordinary i have my moments of spiritual awakening and clarity like everybody else but i consider myself very ordinary i consider myself just simply lucky that I've been in the right place and the right time and opportunities have come my way. And I'm very curious about the spiritual journey because I was born into it. But I don't like being presented on a platform as some kind of like, oh, she's got angels jumping out of her shoulders or whatever. <laughs> or yeah. I can't do that. I, can't, I don't bless my readers. I know I have seen people in this movement blessing people. And as I say, where I am right now, is I'm getting concerned about all that because especially online now, we have so many light worker courses. I have people writing to me, I've just done a certified angel course. And I think, who certified it? What certification? The certification I'm into, and that's why I collaborate with IONS, is, is scientific endorsement. And certainly mediumship. I've done a lot of study of mediumship. People who, you know, because it was what I was born into, a family of spiritualists and spiritualists believe you can communicate to the other side. I can't do it myself. I connect with departed loved ones in dreams and through my feelings and my heart. But I wouldn't say I see dead people in the sense most people think of mediums like the Whoopi Goldberg kind of yeah, uh, you know, representation from a ghost. So I've studied I interviewed it. the guy who got the Oscar for the screenplay for that movie. Bruce Joel Rubin. Oh! He's a real <laughs> spiritual guy. We stay in touch. He sends out a nice little Christmas email every year and with his family news and... Basically, with mediumship, as I say, because a lot of my books are about afterlife experiences or encounters, up until a few years ago, I would avoid mention of mediums because I think the opportunity for fraud is too strong. However, I realize that so many people do get comfort from visiting mediums, so I explored that scientifically as well and went around the country actually to try and find an honest medium, you know, someone who was doing it from their heart, not their ego in their pockets. And there are people who do do, do that. They're rare, but they are. And I came across the Windbridge Institute. I don't know if you're yeah, there. Julie Beichel. Yeah, Julie Yeah, she wrote the foreword to the book I wrote about my search to try and find an honest medium. And um, I love what she's doing and having a scientific testing, using all the scientific protocols. And on her website, she lists mediums who have been tested and passed that, you know, and have a code of ethics. Don't charge 
uh, in arm a, and a leg. Um, I think for a mediumship or a psychic, you know, you should pay no more than you do for a good haircut. <laughs> That's good. And, you know, you shouldn't. And if there's any celebrity hype around it, steer clear because this is about creating a spiritual superstar, not the real deal. In my humble opinion, and as I always say, my opinion could be wrong. There's a difference between opinion and a fact. But that was an interesting voyage that I went on looking at mediumship. I do think there are some honest mediums out there, people who genuinely seem to connect with something. What's going on, whether it's telepathy, but even that's worth studying, isn't it? That's fascinating that someone can actually read someone else's thoughts. I just want to comment on a couple <laughs> of things you said. Firstly, for some reason, when I hear the word light worker, it makes me feel mildly uncomfortable. There's something pretentious about it or holier than thou. And, oh, I'm a light worker, and that makes you like chopped liver. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I found? I think that there are more light workers now than there are actually people seeking that light <laughs> because there's so many of them. And it's not enough to just be spiritually awakened. You've got to be a light worker and you heal and you have a. Pr Usually there's a certified course and a workshop, you know, in pre COVID times. And it's quite frankly ridiculous, a lot of it. And, and almost funny if vulnerable people were not being exploited. And actually, my latest episode of my podcast, I talked to, I think I emailed you about this, Rick, Christopher Johnson, who was in the Netflix documentary, Holy Hell. Oh, yeah. And I emailed you back about this Association for Spiritual Integrity. I'm so glad because it was after I interviewed him. I had an hour long interview and I, the, the interview is going up around uh -huh. that. In my introduction, I actually mentioned you and what synchronicity, because I didn't know about that organization. So I, I list the website and I'll put it in the show notes for people who are concerned. And it was a riveting interview. He talked about, you know, he was 18 year old and how he got sucked into this cult and what was going on, the dynamic between this guru. It's actually, have you watched Holy Hell? No. Well, Is that on Net Netflix, you say? Netflix, oh, yeah. It was a it very out. acclaimed. I've heard of it. It's about the Buddhafield cult. Oh, yes, I, I heard of it. Yes, it's very... I think B. Schofield did a whole article about it. Absolutely fascinating. A Will Allen film. I do highly recommend it because it's a warning of how easy it is to get your whole life given over to, to a cult. And Christopher Johnson plays a leading part in that. He was one of the guru's favorites. And he talks about how he was sucked into it and how he escaped. And I'm blessed for that interview. It was actually, again, through someone who Tim Freak knows, Richard Cox, who kindly connected me because he was hearing me talking on my podcast about, look, why are you following all these people? Have you checked their credentials? I was talking a lot about that. So I got this interview and uh, it's really, really helpful interview. I would love to put him in touch with you. Yeah, actually. Sure. He has a Holy Hell Facebook page for people who have been sucked into cults or whatever. And it's so relevant right now because the, the theme of being fed lies or untruths has gone mainstream. Yeah, it really now has. Because of media. Let's dwell on this topic just for a few more minutes because it's important. And then we'll switch over to angels. I think that discernment, discrimination, and ethics are critical components on the spiritual path. And if one is deficient in any of those, you can be meditating for decades and just go way off the rails and get yourself totally stuck and deluded. So you can't do a spiritual practice or this or that or follow a teacher and relax in all those important areas and expect to just cruise along. But it's so easy, Rick, to get caught up in it. Because I know when I started and I got my first Sunday Times Top 10, 
this was all nearly 20 years ago, I suddenly get deluged with mail of people who like, you've changed my life, you know, whatever. I'm going to be honest, it's intoxicating. I get that too. I mean, I tell people tell me that they were contemplating suicide and and then they listen to Bad Gap. That's wonderful. And I'm sure that is the case because then you are in a position of responsibility because you can either take it to the, and I can see why people would love that and take it further because then when the media started to come in, the media plays a part as well. My first feature in a newspaper, it was a lovely feature and, of course, you have no control how the journalists do it. But when it came out, it was a national newspaper, World's Greatest Psychic. That's what they called you? me. But you're and not I even a psychic. Seen, no, I'm not. But, but I'd written a book <laughs> about astrology <laughs> where I'd given psychological profiles for each day of the year based on simple astrology or whatever. And a lot of people were saying the predictions I'd made were very accurate. But I know that I'm not psychic. I was just using common sense, popular psychology, and putting in a bit of excitement with it. But at that point, I had a choice. I could have gone that path, the celebrity psychic. Maybe I have the odd intuitive hit. Maybe I am intuitive. I think we all are. But it's a choice you have to make. So ever since then, I've said I'm an ordinary person who, like everybody else, has extraordinary experiences from time to time. And when I do, I celebrate those and I write about them and I want to hear about them. But I can understand how it happens. And especially as I'm a serial writer and I've worked with so many publishers, publishers are business. If they're going to publish a psychic or a healer or a medium, they want that psychic and healer medium out there with the tour and the it's a business. So it's it's very difficult to go back to when you see this term light worker, somebody says they've had a vision of an angel or somebody says they can see auras or had a near-death experience, automatically people want to worship and follow and there's something in human nature that wants that. And that concerns yeah. me a bit. Well, you remember what Jesus said, all these things I do, these miraculous things, you shall do even greater things. I think he was trying to tell people that there's nothing really special about me that you don't potentially have as well and you need to develop it absolutely i believe we're all got it in us but it's it's where you choose to put your focus and also when you do focus on it not to get obsessed with it and not to be results driven yeah and to expect the unexpected when you do start developing your spirituality and not think that spirituality is going to reveal itself in a very set fixed way you know, like in the movies or whatever, you know, how you think, oh, suddenly you're going to wake up and you see an angel or suddenly you're going to wake up and you have a blinding premonition that saves your life. That's not how it works. It's much more subtle than that. And if you're a teacher, then it's not only for the sake of your students that you have to toe this ethical line and maintain humility and so on, because you can harm people if you don't, but it's also for your own sake, because the bigger they are, the harder they fall. And if it goes to your head, you're going to crash and burn eventually. This need within people, you're right to want to follow and to be told what to do. And it is intoxicating if you're in a position of influence to fall into that and give people what they want, which is certainty. Like if somebody's grieving, this is what you need to do. If you fear death, Here's what to think. It's very intoxicating to fall into that. But as I've said many times to people, I'm sure if there is an afterlife, when you go to the other side, you won't be asked how much you copied or followed anyone else. You'll be asked, how much was Teresa, Teresa? Not much. How did Teresa be inspired by the works of Mother Teresa or Gandhi or all sorts of iconic spiritual figures? How true were you to who you are? That's what I believe. 
It's interesting that some of my most popular interviews have been channelers and healers. Oh, yes. Everybody wants right, that. Right. Because they're it's... doing it for you. I don't have to do anything. I'm going to get this wisdom from this person. I'm going to get healed by this person and so on. Yeah, exactly. It's much easier to see someone who and worship someone like that. And also it's sensational. It's exciting. You know, this person's seen heaven. This person knows what death's like. This person can talk to arcane. That's what I talk about in my angel thing to go on about that. There's apparently, according to angel experts, there's this whole hierarchy. I mean, it seems to be very much like they've organized the other side like LinkedIn It seems like there's this whole hierarchy of ascended masters and all these things that happen on the other side. And I think this is madness. Well, let's let's switch to the whole angel talk here (laughs) because we we spent an hour talking about a lot of stuff. But let's dedicate the rest of this interview mostly to talking about angels. Angels you just alluded to somehow live on the other side or they live in some dimension that is not our ordinary earthly perception. Let me give a quick definition of what I think angels are, and you tell me how that jibes with what you understand, and then please elaborate to a great extent. My sense, intuitive and also just intellectual from everything I've studied, is that there are many dimensions to the universe, and all beings have a certain range of perception, operate within a certain range, and human beings have the capability to, well, ordinarily they operate within a fairly narrow band, but they have the capability to expand their range of perception to incorporate subtler realms in which forms of life reside, subtle beings, angels, and all kinds of other, there's a whole menagerie of different types of beings that are outlined in various traditional scriptures. There is a hierarchy, perhaps, in the sense that some of them have much greater power and are a higher level of evolution, have much greater, broader sphere of influence. And some of them might be very specific and localized, either attending to certain individual people or plants or trees or whatever. They have, so there might be little angel devas or whatever, and then great big galactic gods or devas. It wouldn't be practical for ordinary human life to be aware of this stuff all the time, but some people like David Spangler and others are born with a natural capacity to experience this stuff, and others it may develop later on in life. One thing that's fascinating here is that imagine if extraterrestrials landed on the White House lawn or maybe the courtyard of Buckingham Palace. It would be a huge news story. Wow, there's other kinds of life that we never even realized existed, and here they are, we see them. So it's a little bit ironic that we're completely surrounded by forms of life that we don't even imagine exist, and yet do, and they may or may not be aware of us, many of them are, I think, and they're all among us, and yet most of us are completely oblivious to that fact. That's fascinating. I love your interpretation about angels. And for me, whatever people think about angels is right for them. For me personally, I've come to the belief that I don't know these unseen realms. I'm sure they exist, but I have no personal proof. I'm sure there are people who say they can travel to these realms, but that's their experience. That's about Well, the realms them. are right here. You don't have to travel to them. All those subtle dimensions are right here and can be perceived in the midst of Riding on a bus or something. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's what I say. The angels around there are within. And that's my expansive interpretation about angels. And what I love about angels is that they exist in every religion, even Buddhism. We have kind of winged figures, but they can also exist outside of religion. Nobody went to war about angels. 
They are totally universal and they're a wonderful way to draw people into spirituality. You can believe in angels without being religious. I love that aspect. But increasingly, from all the research I've done, and I have been writing, I've written probably about 15 angel books now. This will be my 16th. You know, You've written about really, 100 books, haven't you? I have. What did you call me? You called uh, me the serial scripter. <laughs> you must have really you know, good time management skills to write all these books. It's my passion in life. It's what I love to do. But a lot of these books are a collection of other people's stories, people who write to me, ordinary people who've had angelic encounters. And then I collate them, I edit them, and I talk about them, bringing in some of my academic insight. As I said, I was blessed to study at Cambridge, to study religion and all that. So I kind of bring all that into it. But now I'm bringing in the science. But where I am at right now, I think angels are within, as you say. They're the mysterious, the unexplained, the intuition, and basically anything that makes you feel sublime, that makes you kinder, that makes you more compassionate, that makes you more loving. This is where I have come to term angels. Let's pick that apart a little bit. Angels are within. Please define within. And then the second part is anything that makes you kinder and this and that. Well, you can get kinder just watching a good movie about kind people or something or reading a biography of Mother Teresa. Exactly. Everything that is um, an angel sign, your angel sign, the biography of Mother Teresa. Why would angels have anything to do with that? It's just an uplifting book. I know, but angels have inspired it. I don't know, but that's what I've come to believe. I believe that angels exist within us. And they are the force, the force for goodness and compassion in the world. And at the end of the day, that force for goodness, love and compassion is all that truly matters. It what gives us deeper meaning. It's what people on their deathbed, I've had the privilege to sit with people when they were dying, when I worked in a hospice. They talk of love. They talk about kindness. They talk about their angels. That's the way that I feel angels express themselves. I'm not interested in angelology or giving angel very human terms and names or saying that just because I've had a dream and in that dream I went to a realm and I saw all these angel beings reading books, that that is real. I don't know. All I know is that at the end of the day, what gives our life deeper meaning is this spiritual understanding, this connection to the force within us. That's where it's got very, very simple with me, actually, my life, really. It's got so simple. I've realized that all these years I've overcomplicated it with all this terminology, with all these groups, with all these systems, with all these people who have this set way of doing it. It's very, very simple. I think spirituality can be summed up with two words. Be kind. That's great. That's it. Just end the conversation. That's it. Just be kind because... Through doing that, we make the world a better place. We also make ourselves feel better. And there's scientific research, psychological research to show that kindness is this force. Kindness can make you lead a beautiful life. Yeah, it's very important. And um, for so many reasons, kindness is important not only for the people you influence, but because there's an immediate feedback loop. And if you are unkind, you coarsen and degrade and undermine your own. So true. But the most important starting point for that is kindness to the self. That's got to be, but most people understand being kind to others. And I've met so many spiritual people who are endlessly kind for other people, helping, giving, 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 but still unhappy. And of course, it's that be kind is the proviso. Be kind to yourself and others. 
you know, that's the most important thing. And I think it is the hardest thing for people to learn. A lot of my books actually have become very simple with the journey, the return to love, the return to being for yourself, what you're looking for in others, because we're seeking in others, in relationships, in career, in spiritual teachings, feeling good about ourselves. But we've got to do that for ourselves. That's the starting point. Self-love. Every religious system encourages self-care, but none of them really tell us how to do it. Especially if you've had a traumatic childhood, as a lot of people drawn to spirituality are, because they, you know, the people who should care for them didn't. So they seek a deeper meaning and an understanding why. You need to learn the basics of self-love, that return to love. It's the hardest thing to do. It really is. It takes a lifetime. But once you get to that point, not narcissism, I'm not talking about that. There's so much talk about narcissism, and that's a completely different category. But just nurturing yourself body mind and soul that's the starting point because when you do that i believe you naturally attract people into your life who treat you the way you treat yourself yeah i mean the way i would interpret self-love i had a big epiphany when i was 18 and i had been taking full advantage of everything the the late 60s had to offer and i kind of realized the experience is important too i mean we need to encounter our shadow and you know we learn through that yeah. we do learn. but i had gotten pretty messed up and i i had this realization that if i continue on like this i'm going to really damage this body this nervous system and this is my vehicle for living life so i really better clean up my act and then I changed a lot of things, stopped taking drugs, learned to meditate and everything. I guess you could think of that as self-love, taking care of this precious gift of human nervous system, not providing it with adequate sleep and nutrition and things that make it more healthy, make it function better, like you would take care of a, an expensive automobile that you want to absolutely, keep in tune. Yeah. Absolutely. People take better care of their cars than themselves, but it's a switch that's got to go on. And what triggers that? Because until someone's ready to make that decision to, to take care of themselves, nothing other people say or do is going to help it. And that's what I feel is the divine within. Some switch has to go on that you actually get it. It is heartbreaking when you tell people to do the right thing or to take care of themselves, but they're not there yeah, yet. Yeah. It seems that their soul has to go through another journey, another tough love experience. And it's typically during times of crisis, bereavement, mm -hmm. loss, grief. They are catalysts for this. Well, I've reached rock bottom now, so I've got to do something different than what I've done before. Yeah, yeah. And that switch is a personal one. It can't really be facilitated by someone else. And that's why, as you told we're talking about light workers and gurus. That's all great. But unless you're ready to take that step yourself, make that decision yourself, take responsibility for yourself, it's not going to help. I'm going to switch back to what we were talking about a minute ago. You, you were saying that angels are kind of within, and I was reminded of Lincoln's phrase, the better angels of our nature, which I believe he said during his inaugural address. So you're kind of defining angels there as positive attributes within our personality. I just want to suggest, and perhaps you also believe this, that angels also exist outside of us. For instance, one time I did a panel discussion of a bunch of people who say they had subtle perception or celestial perception, and people were talking about the different experiences of subtle beings and all that they have, and one of the people didn't have much to say, and afterwards I asked why, and she said, well, they were in my face. They were saying, you realize you can't talk about this. Okay. I won't. And that person also told me that she sees 
angels or, or something. Don't even know what they are really, but presumably guardian angels around people all the time, just routinely. As you and I would see people in a shopping mall, uh, they just kind of cluster around and seem to be attending to people in some way. Absolutely, yeah. Rick. There are people who say that they can see that. And I say good for them if it makes you happy and it harms no one. However, the great majority of people, myself included, and me. don't see right. that. I've had a few glimpses, but so not where much. Does that, where does that leave us, feeling like failures? Nah, nah. I mean, spiritual failures, because obviously... If this person says they can see all these beings, why can't we? Does that mean that we need to learn then what they do or whatever? And it sets up a cycle of dependency of that, that you know, these people are, you know, they're on a higher spiritual level. And I, I'm very much about equality in spirituality. And I don't actually think it's necessary because I can see angels in a grain of sand in the love of my pet, in the laughter of my children, or in a sunset or a sunrise. I see them with my inner eyes when I close my eyes and I think of beautiful things. And I think that's much more of a powerful message than to go out there and say to people, well, there are these beings, you can't see them, but I can. Yeah, no, I'm not coming from that angle. Because I've been to course after course of spiritual, honestly, I, in my teens, I was such an earnest spiritual seeker, and I really thought, I went to the College of Psychic Studies, I mean, I literally was a junkie for courses. I was shopping for heaven, as it were. And I actually found myself, because I was in these groups, and they can be very smug spiritual retreats or whatever. I'm going to say that. Very serious as well. Humor is often lacking. Well, it was certainly was when I was doing it. And all these people were saying, well, I had this vision and whatever. And I was thinking, I've seen nothing. I felt something was wrong with me. And then I'd go to the guru and they say, well, when you're ready, there appear. And that's great. But then... I just feel that there are a lot of people like me who maybe have been on psychic development courses, have seen absolutely nothing, but feel they ought to, made it up. I think it's good not <laughs> to, prepare, to compare oneself with others. When you're young, you tend your to, tendency yeah, you tend is to more, but... much older now. So I realize the only person I should compare myself is the person with I, I was yesterday. Yeah. And the only person I should aspire to be is the per better person I can be tomorrow. But back then, it was you know very impressionable. Right. And I began to think... Why are we all doing all these courses and spending hours meditating? I mean, who's got time for that anyway? Shouldn't life be lived? And I typically find it, no disrespect, Rick, but it's often men who meditate for hours. Hmm. Yeah. And I, I just think, well, you know. I love it. I know, but you, who, you know, I'm sure I mean, Irene's I, doing I do <laughs> stuff the rest of the time, but, you know, a couple times a day. I... But two hours to be able to switch off, and especially if you, you are busy and you've got dependents or whatever or whatever, to just take two hours out. I, you know, I've seen that happen a lot, you know, in couples that the man, where's he gone? Oh, he's meditating and she's rushing around doing 101 things. So I think Irene appreciates <laughs> getting me out of the room for an hour. <laughs> no, that's true. But, but if meditation's for you, as I say, I think if everybody has their uh, own unique When I way. meditate, she's saying it seems like it's mostly men who, who like to meditate. And I don't know if that's true, but... Um, Probably not. But I'm going to get a it's like she to, it's changed. Irene doesn't resent the fact that I'm not bugging her for 24-7. <laughs> He's quiet. He's meditate. not talking. Yeah, she says, you meditate and I vegetate. <laughs> But anyway, I'm, I'm not criticizing that at all. Yeah. If it's somebody's path and it makes them feel good. Saved my life. And it makes you know, and it continues to enhance it. Yes, but I would never recommend, for example, in my books, go and meditate for two hours every day or whatever, because it's simply not practical. Yeah, yeah I wouldn't either. I mean, it's just what yeah. I do.
<laughs> to each his own. Anyway, and this whole thing about just... comparing oneself with others, you know, I can't play basketball like some famous star or I can't write like you do or all kinds of things that I don't do, but I do what I do. Variety is the spice of life and there are 8 billion of us and we're each unique and everybody has their contribution to make. It's called Dharma in the, you're probably aware of this word, that course of action which for you is most appropriate and through which you can be most effective. Absolutely. That's where I've, I've come to at the moment. Dharma. Yeah, yes. Yeah. That's where yeah. I've come to at the moment. And whatever works for you, as long as it harms no one and it makes you feel good about yourself. Absolutely. It's wonderful. But to return to the angels, as I said, I have a very expansive interpretation of angels now, and it does tend to be connecting to your better angels, which I think is what the world needs at the moment. The more of us activate, it's in our DNA. Being kind, having empathy is actually in our DNA. Cultures that take care of each other, societies that take care of each other tend to survive. So it's necessary for evolution. Increasingly in modern times, the empathy gene has switched off for whatever reason. And switching that back on again for me is igniting the aspiring angel within you. And if you believe in unseen realms, bringing the angels closer to earth, because it's like a magnet, empathy, compassion, love. If there are unseen beings out there, that draws them closer to you. That's how they speak to you. Yeah. There's a saying in Sanskrit, which is um, the means collect around sattva. And sattva means purity. By means, it means that there are impulses of intelligence, we could call them angels, which are involved in the way things happen in the world. They orchestrate things. If you are more like them, then they are able to align with you more. They're able to resonate with you more and be of greater assistance in the fulfillment of your desires because your desires are more in tune with sort of divine intentions. Absolutely. Absolutely. Beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I love that. So, we're not alone. They do exist within us, but if we limit our... But do you not think that what's within us is also without us? I mean, I've got to, you know, that bliss is when there's that beautiful merging between the force, spiritual force within us, with what is outside us, that it's all one, that there's a sense of interconnection. Because when I have spoken to people who've had peak experiences or interviewed them for my books or whatever, they talk about this interconnection. And also near-death experiences, people who say that they've died and gone to heaven. I spoke to Ibn Alexander about It's this, this blissful understanding that it's all the same. And that's such a mind-blowing, mind-opening concept that is hard to explain in human terms. But for me, what's within and what's without is one. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Great sages like Ramana Maharshi and, and others have described this beautifully. They're not just philosophizing about it. It's their living experience. They are the oneness. They are Brahman. They are the totality. I was just hearing a story last night from a Swami I take classes from named Swami Sarvapiananda. And someone was saying to Ramakrishna, who you know lived back in the 1800s mostly, and who had gone through a number of difficulties in his life, people giving him a hard time and various health things. And, and someone was saying, why is it that such a, you know, soul as you should have to suffer all these outrages? You know, it's really not right. And he, and he said, forget the exact wording, but if you think this little thing here is me, you know, you're really not seeing the full picture. 
And he said the same thing when he was dying of cancer. People were saying, oh, you're suffering and all that. He said, no, no, no. He says, I am the universe. How could I suffer? I am the vastness that you're just identifying with this little entity, this little physical form. But that's really not what I am. That's a huge, expansive way to that look at it. That was his experience, I, yeah. I mean, he wasn't just yeah, that philosophizing. Was, that's incredible. Why bad things happen to wonderful, good people? Eternal question, isn't it? And I've just come to the point now when, you know, I get so much mail about this just to say, just keep asking why, never stop asking why, because in the asking of why, you activate your compassion and your empathy. Imagine a world where we knew why everything happened. We know why a woman screams in pain when she has a baby. We aren't that concerned, are we? We just think, okay, just imagine a world where we knew the reason for your friend having cancer or or someone a child dying imagine if we knew we would not be kind or compassionate we'd be nonchalant and that's not a world that I think I would want to live in so I've come to that point because you know these are questions that uh, you know been asked since the beginning of the time who is Teresa Chung to be able to answer them I do get asked them a lot I'm sure you get asked them as well Big, big questions like that. Like, what is life? Why are we here? Why do bad things happen to good people? There's a part of me that would just love to have a great answer. But I just say, let's just keep asking these questions. Because the more we ask questions, the more we grow. Because I think when you know something, when something is known and certain, sorted, it's almost like stagnant, isn't it? Yeah. The growth stops. If you're, especially if you're adamant about it or if you're insistent that it's yeah. got to be this way, then that's a problem. But aren't we living in a world now where it's so much like that, where it's black and white, where people are just like, it's my way or the highway. That's the world, way the world's come. I know the answers. This is what's happening. We've lost this ability to be open-minded about other opinions that are different from our own. And that's sad. That is really sad. Yes, we're all dreaming more and we're awakening, but this, the sad part as well, as I've seen, as I'm sure you have in recent years, this closed-mindedness that's happening as well, where people have their fixed ideology and that's it, that's the answer. Yeah, there's so, so many things going on. I mean, I, th I think there's an increased polarity taking place in the world and in, in many people's psychologies. Um, and uh, this thing about knowing things for certain. I mean, we, you know, you and I yes. believe certain things that, that we've been discussing today and we believe that there's an afterlife, for instance, but we're not going to kill. I could be wrong. Yeah, of course. I now could that's, be wrong the, about everything. that's the scientific everything. I, attitude. I, I, admit that. I, I could be wrong about everything. I have an opinion and I could be wrong about everything I've said to yeah. you and uh, I'll find out on the other side. when I. <laughs> and that's one of the principles of the scientific method. <laughs> Hypotheses <laughs> should be falsifiable in order to be a valid hypothesis. That's why I love working with scientists, because I've often asked to them, you know, especially ones like Dr. Byshaw, the IONS crowd, you know, Dean, are you a believer? And oh, they yeah. say to me, that's irrelevant. Yeah. They often say to me, that's irrelevant. The science matters. I'm a scientist first and a believer or a skeptic second. I like that, that development. You Oprah know? was interviewing uh, Eckhart Tolle. Oh, I thought you were going to say Harry and Meghan. No, yeah, that too. That's coming up. <laughs> She did this thing where she started little sentences and had him finish them. And so one of the sentences was, I believe, and then he said, nothing in particular. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm starting to say I don't know. Oh, and also I, change, I do change my mind, you know, that opinions I had 
10, 20 years ago, of course, I'm a different person now. I've evolved. I've learned. I've changed my mind. And people find that very difficult. You know, when I started out, you know, I was collecting all these angel stories. Angels are real. They're these beings with wings and whatever. It does evolve and change. That's something that people who follow you, as we have in this world, you know, if you become a public figure, struggle with. I say, well, actually, that's wrong. This is what I think now. And that's okay. It's okay to change your mind. But changing your mind seems to be considered a crime these days. Yeah, I I was thinking of another Lincoln quote here. Someone accused him of changing his mind or something like that about something. And he just he spun it around and said, you know, that's a good thing that I can change. It is a good thing. It is a good thing to be open-minded because that's how the human race evolves, surely. If we all know all the answers, we don't know. All of us are guessing here. And it doesn't mean that we don't favor certain bodies of knowledge that we accumulate. We're pretty darn sure the Earth is not flat, although there are people who think it is. That documentary, The Flat Earth, I mean, I Oh, is there, it, where but, is that on Netflix also? I, oh, i got to see that I'm one. I'm spending way too much time on Netflix. That's what you've identified on this. You know, we know that people landed on the moon, but there are people who think we didn't. So it's not like we have to be total wishy-washy people who don't favor well, one well, perspective you know, over another, you know, but you just can't take it to the point of absolute adamancy. There are only two things we know we're going to be born and we're going yeah, to die. You know that. Those are the absolute and taxes. But, you know, we do know those two things. That's all we really know. Everything else, why are we here? Why are we even alive? And we know we're conscious or we know that consciousness somehow but is. are we when you have a very realistic dream? Could be, but then we're conscious and in you, that dream. What's happening? Where do we go? Everything in this life is a mystery. And if you have that attitude, I think that's a wonderfully exciting way to live. I have come to expect the unexpected all the time. Make a joke now and ask you to talk about something really crazy that you have no idea what, because <laughs> that would be unexpected. <laughs> I won't do that. Would you like to know about Harry and Meghan? No, <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> I wish them well. I said I'd be doing radio stations. This is about dreaming or spirituality. And then they hear my accent, especially overseas, and they want my opinion on Harry and Meghan. It's <laughs> rather hear about the Beatles, but then you're not from Liverpool. so. How many Brits have been on Batgap? I know you have two. Oh, quite a few others. A former Brit Gap, Batgap Yeah, we, can, we have a thing called Britbox over here that you can watch British... Maybe I should call it Bat Box. Who was that guy who was friends with with Eckhart Tolle? Who he's wrote the yeah. I've had Steve on. I was just listening to him. Yes, yes, Steve Taylor. In fact, I want to email him because he mentioned something in your interview with him that I found fascinating, which was that he finds himself feeling blissful at funerals, and he thinks people would think that's strange. But I wanted to say me too, and not so much funerals, but when both of my parents died, I felt tremendous upwelling of bliss and not that i was happy they died but and in my father's case i didn't even know he had died and i was just having this amazing day i was thinking wow this is wonderful i feel so good today what's going on and then later i found out he had died the night before and i think it's somehow that we participate in their release they also return to you in spirit don't they that they can always be with you in your memories in your dreams and in your heart and uh, it's a kind of a fuller richer relationship in some ways because when someone's in their physical form it's limited by time and space yeah and when someone dies that relationship in spirit 
that's the wonderful thing when you have lost someone that eventually you come to a point when you enter into this new relationship in spirit and realize how rich and full it is. Yeah. And in the case of my parents, they both lived very difficult lives. You know, my father had a lot of PTSD from World War II and alcoholism and all my mother, all sorts of psychological problems. But in any case, I felt like with both of them, they must have experienced quite a delightful transition from what they had been experiencing to, boom, that release. And somehow I partook the of peace. that. If you've ever sat with people who've passed, it's the peace, the peace. I mean, obviously not always, but when I, you know, in my teens, I worked in a hospice and that was very powerful experience holding someone's hand but instinctively when I was with them you just sense that something the spirit when the spirit goes it's it is a blissful yeah. release did you ever hear what Steve Jobs said just as he was dying oh wow yeah, exactly three times oh wow three times <laughs> yeah. he was such an intuitive man as well what was he seeing what was he seeing but you instinctively feel that the body becomes like a coat that they've taken off. That's what it is. It's no longer them. And that's why I'm not actually big on funerals in a way, because I know that beautiful Mary Fryfe poem, I, I always love quoting, you know, do not stand at my grave and weep. I am not there. I do not sleep. I'm the wind that blow. You know, it's just so beautiful way of understanding death. In the Vedanta tradition, they're what they call koshas or sheaths. And the, the physical body is the outermost sheath. It's called the Anamaya Kosha, which means food kosha because the body is made of food. And then there's the, the, the breath, the Pranamaya Kosha, the, the mind, the Manamaya Kosha, the, the, the intellect. And then the, the innermost one is the bliss sheath, the Anandamaya Kosha. And when, when the physical body dies, it's b believed that all you're shedding is the outermost sheath. And that the other sheaths still exist and function on whatever realm you end up in. These are beautiful representations, isn't it, of the same thing? How, you know, every culture has, you know, given beautiful interpretations of this this release that Steve was talking about. I, I agree this. But, you know, I don't want to glamorize death in any way. And I, I'm conscious when I have written afterlife books to not tonight, you know, that death is this, you know, great adventure you're going to. We're here on this earth for a very important reason, because this earth is almost a bit like school. We've got important things to learn. And there's you can have heaven on earth. Too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. People often say the afterlife is you can experience it right now through what you say, what you do, what you feel. I believe, actually that you create the kind of afterlife you will experience by what you're feeling, thinking and doing. We actually create through our lives. And that's why, you know, the concept of like, does a serial killer go back to that thing? Do they go to heaven? Do they have this blissful relief? They shouldn't surely if they've been horrible. They've killed lots of people. What happens to them in the afterlife? That's another question I get. And I think that in the afterlife, just as in this life, the learning continues. And I believe that the spirit of someone who has been evil will have to feel what their victims felt yep. or the people they hurt. Yep. So there's empathy. Have you ever heard there. Danny and Brinkley's story? He's one of these well-known near-death experience people, and he had four NDEs, twice getting struck by lightning and two in heart surgeries. And he had been a sharpshooter in Vietnam, killing people. And what he experienced was a life review in each NDE in which he experienced mm -hmm. the consequences of his actions from the perspective of the people 
whom they influenced and the families of those people and so on. He had to kind of go through everything they experienced as a result of having their loved one killed. What an awesome thought. Yeah, that, he's dedicated his life to helping people in hospice situations and things like that now, but it's kind of interesting to hear him describe it. It's wow. not like a punishment, it's more like a learning. Learning. I don't believe in hell, but it's the learning on the other side. But also, what an awesome thought, because near-death experiences classically talk about the life review, don't they? Watching your life again, typically in reverse. And I always think, well, do I really want to watch my life again? <laughs> if I'm doing something I'm not proud of. Do I, I'm going to have to see this again. I, that's often very powerful for me. If I do something that is not in line with my values or my higher self or whatever, and I think, well, do I want to watch this again? And that's a really... <laughs> You're going to have to watch it all again. You're going to live every interview again, Rick. Uh, well, that'd be okay. They've, <laughs> they've been fun. But even now, don't you have the experience, I do, that you often will relive or dwell upon something that happened many, many years ago, and you're kind of, yeah. particularly negative things I've done that have hurt people, and I just sort of yeah. go through it, and I feel like I'm processing it and reaching out for I forgiveness to the person and things like that. We're all human. We all have a shadow side. And why we do, I don't know, but we do. But I think in those cases, especially if you have hurt someone and you can't reach out to them or they don't want to communicate anymore, I think there's, there is great value in sending them positive energy, sending them the energy that you understand. that Because a lot of people, they want to know how you made them feel. And I think they, a lot of people want to be seen and heard. I think if, but if they won't communicate with you, just sending them that healing energy, I think, can have a dramatic effect, not only on yourself, but also on them in an unseen yeah, way. Yeah, I think so. I say that to anyone listening. If you're feuding with someone or there's animosity or you have hatred, I hate that term, but we have it all within us, just try for three days to send them compassion. And it makes a radical difference, a radical difference. It's, it's a big shift. It's a big shift, but you can do it. Yeah, I heard a story on the radio the other day about this guy who, when he was 14, had killed another boy. And yes. then he had spent many, many years in prison, even though he was 14 when he did it. And eventually the, the father of the boy he had killed had come to prison and had befriended him, or maybe he had written to the father, I don't know. But they have become like dear friends, and the the guy who killed the other guy's son, now works for an organization that, that he has established, that they're helping people with forgiveness and helping people who have been through experiences like that. So, I think forgiveness is a forgotten word these days, actually. I think there's not enough emphasis in spirituality on, we talk about love and compassion and empathy. Forgiveness, I think, is something that's a little bit neglected in the spiritual repertoire. Forgiveness of ourselves as well as others. Works both ways. Yeah. That father of the boy, if he had just continued hating this kid all of his life, it would have been eating away at him. You give over your power, and, don't you? Yeah, you give over something, your power. Instead, something beautiful came out of it. So, what haven't we covered? You've written so many books. Shall we talk about psychic cats? Yes! <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, after I went on Russell Brand, and, you know, the most bonkers interview ever, actually, this was actually because up, up until Russell Brand, actually, which was a few years ago, I really hadn't done much media because I, I do try and practice what I preach. And I very much feel that spiritual books are something that people find that they don't need to be marketed. I really do believe Probably that. Probably your publishers um, are bugging you to get out and promote more, yes. yes. 
Yes. Or I should stop doing what I'm doing and go on a retreat, something or go to the monastery or nunnery, wherever I wanted to go. But it was one of the first ones I did, really. And um, he mentioned psychic cats. And um, since then, it's had a bit of a resurgence. Yeah. <laughs> what it is, it's people basically. And it annoys me because Rupert Sheldrake right. wrote about the telepathic bond between human and dog. Yeah. He is not laughed at because he's a scientist. However, Teresa Chung, you know, um, she writes about it. Let's have a good old laugh, you know. And it's, but I suppose it played into the stereotype of, of a, a woman of a certain age who lives with yeah, cats cat lady. and thinks she's psychic. Right. But basically, it's a beautiful book. It, you know, I had a cat when I was growing up that was my best friend. I had it for about nearly twenty years and died just before I went to Cambridge. And that beautiful cat was, I think, a fur angel. And um, <laughs> And that inspired the book. And then people write to me about how their cats have sensed how they feel. I oh, mean, yeah. cats are used in hospital settings as well as dogs. I mean, I'm now very, I have both two cats and two dogs at the moment. And it can work. There is an apartheid in our house. But it can work. I love them both. And I think animals are, I think actually you can tell a lot about a person the way they treat animals. Yeah. We've had a... You know, um... Irene in particular, but I think I also experienced this with a couple of our cats or even maybe dogs when they died is some kind of afterlife message or, or communication or something from them. Pets from yeah. heaven. Yes. Was that one of your books? I've Pets been, from heaven. Right. I, no, I was asked to write it. I, I was signed to write it, but I changed it actually in the end um, after. <laughs> but no, I get a lot of messages from people because, you know, actually, the relationship between a human and their pet can sometimes be one of the most important relationships in a person's life. And I, I think pet bereavement is a, is a big under neglected area um, that, you know, these are the, their best friends sometimes. Um, and people do have afterlife experiences involving their cat or their dog or their horse or their rabbit. And it's not to be laughed at because love in any form is valid. I believe animals have souls. I believe that they have empathy. They're natural empaths. Dogs are natural empaths, you know. And um, when that goes from your life, you know, it's tough. And I think you can connect with pets on the other. You can connect to pets on the other I think side. So. Um, <laughs> have you had Rupert Sheldrake on your podcast? I haven't actually. I must yeah, yeah. do, but you good. know, I do get annoyed that he wasn't. <laughs> He wasn't laughed at, you know. Oh, he gets he, laughed he at. Believe me, a lot of people think he's a nutcase. Does yeah. he? Well, anyone in this area does. You know, even the ion scientists, they get a lot sure. of um, flack, don't they? Um, but, you know, that's okay. That's okay. I get laughed at. But, you know, as I say, this year, not so much, Rick. It's been, it took a pandemic to unleash me. But <laughs> now people are seeking out spiritual insight i wouldn't say guidance i don't think i guide i just offer a perspective what what are you saying irene say something about theo he's so psychic abilities all the time theo yeah is that your yeah, dog he, irene's saying he shows psychic abilities like uh, yeah right like if we even think about going someplace you know taking a walk or something we have to be really really careful uh, because even even thinking the thought he's like whoa his ears perk up <laughs> maybe there's some kind of signals we're letting out or something i don't know but it, it's it's 
unconditional love as well and that to me is an angel so i think that pets can be angels but that's your next guest theo yeah theo <laughs> you're theo for two hours i bet you that would get more hits. it probably would <laughs> uh, <laughs> i'd show you one of them but she's fast asleep irene can pick oh, maybe irene should pick her what up kind of, what kind of dog oh is what is what is uh pick luna up what is luna oh, she's sleeping. Oh. can i see oh, please i'm yeah here comes theo yeah, you can hold Theo over here. Don't actually give him to me. Right. I think he's got to be on there. Here he there comes. More. You ready? Should... There he is. That's there. He's a psychic oh. He's a psychic chewini. <laughs> so this is where I know that I'm wealthy because I say to people, if people offered me like a billion dollars mm -hmm. or my doggy, I'd choose my dog. So I'm wealthy already. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Beautiful dog you have. Theo is gorgeous. Theo Rock. Right? This is Luna. Isn't she pretty? This is the future for that Yeah. <laughs> oh, that dog loves you. Look at that look. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh. Now no, I, no, I can't talk about anything else. I'm thinking doggies. Oh, we used to have a couple of cats, cats, and sometimes one of them would walk in front of the camera like this. You'd see its tail going across. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they're lovely. They're lovely. They're great companions. The way you treat animals says a lot about you as a person. People like Gandhi and others have said similar things. And Jesus, of course, said, whatsoever you do unto the least of these, you do unto me. Yes, I agree. I think that we are creating a, you know, the barbaric way that animals are treated. We're creating a very negative energy and force in the world. I mean, I'm not advocating, obviously, I'm a vegetarian. Of course I would be. But, you know, I don't have anything against people who aren't as long as the animals are treated humanely. Um, it's cruelty against animals. It's one of the reasons I, I, I think I said this on Russell, that I went off social media for several years because some of the images of animal cruelty, I, I literally I couldn't cope. Um, I found them too upsetting because I'd replay them in my mind. Um, and uh, I've had, you know, managed to deal with it now. But I just cannot understand how anyone could be cruel to. It's the innocence, I think. Yeah, that's why people love them. It's the innocence. Yeah, the trust. Yeah. And again, it all comes back to, you know, like, here's an analogy. If you, if you had a knife, let's say, that was sharp on both ends and didn't have a handle and you stab somebody with that knife, you're also cutting your own hand. And I think any kind of mistreatment of people or animals or anything else is, is like that knife. It, it hurts them, but it hurts you just as much, if not more. Well, it's that beautiful thing is when you point a finger, there's one exactly, finger. Exactly, there's three you... pointing back at you. Yeah, exactly. Alrighty. so is there anything else that we want to cover that you're going to not be able to sleep and dream tonight because we hadn't covered once we hang no, up? and no, you. <laughs> No, I'm just, just love it. I really am very grateful for the opportunity and to talk to you. And I'm so glad I found your channel. We'll spread the word about it. I'm just very grateful. Thank you. Well, let's stay in touch. I can recommend some people to you who you might not be aware of that might be good to have on your podcast. And you're connected Especially with all kinds of people Brits. that you can tell us about. Absolutely. Yeah. Any guest on my podcast you'd like their contact, just let me know. Um, as I say, Christopher Johnson, he's a very eloquent former member of a cult and the Netflix documentary, Holy Hell, you know, it's very famous and he makes powerful and memorable appearance in that. He will get a lot of interest. Even Alexander. Yeah, we had him had scheduled at one yeah. point, sort of tentatively, but then it kind of fell through oh, he, the cracks. That was like five oh, he, or six years did. ago. We should do that. 
Oh yes, you've got to let me know, and I'll, I'll connect you. He would love to. Yeah. He's you know a place in his life now when that's what he's doing. He's just spreading the yeah. word. It's a shame you don't want me to do my um, Harry and Meghan commentary. Oh, but that's well, if, if you insist. <laughs> well, it's taken over over here in the UK at the moment. The media's awash with it. It's ridiculous. You know, people are having opinions about it. Well, it's almost that same principle we've been discussing where people project something onto others and think of them as like special and they should consume all the airtime because they're so famous or whatever. And we're not princes and princesses, you know, and they are. And I don't know. It just seems <laughs> kind of it's it's a form of entertainment more than anything. I It is it's entertainment. It's, you know, but what happened in your country, especially last year, is that your your politics in particular became better than a Netflix series. I mean, it, we were over here in the UK, we were like watching it yeah, like well, next installment and yeah, like a, on the edge of like a season. horror movie. What happened to America, in your opinion? What happened? I don't know. I have been following the whole conspiracy theory thing a lot. I've, I've interviewed a, three guys who have a podcast called Conspirituality, where they talk about the really? incursion of conspiracy thinking into the spiritual world, spiritual community. But obviously, whatever's going on in America goes far beyond just the spiritual communities. You've probably seen the Netflix documentary, uh, the social dilemma. Yes. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Um, yes. So yes. everybody's going down their own rabbit holes and getting more and more polarized. And as you were saying earlier, being more entrenched in their particular perspectives and not, not being broad minded to see multiple perspectives and the whole social media thing reinforces that. And uh, it's made politics unworkable. It's made families unable to divide, talk yeah. to each other. And, so somewhere or other, we've got to move beyond all that. Obviously, I'm a Brit-based author, but, you know, as I said, I had this opportunity last year to go on Coast to Coast for two hours. I did two hours of dream decoding. It was wonderful. They were really kind. But it kind of going into that world, because obviously being on the line for two hours, the adverts I was hearing and the and it was all China virus. And I'm thinking, oh, oh yeah. God, Teresa Chung, you know, because oh, yeah. obviously they, <laughs> and it, was, it was like really kind of quite unsettling. And, you know, having my surname that I do, although I'm not Chinese, my husband is, I couldn't believe it. But also what I found when I went into that two hour on Coast to Coast was I could understand why people were believing this because it, there was a very family feel. There was a sense of belonging. You believe this and we'll give you this and you belong. It felt very almost weirdly reassuring because all the thinking had been done for you so it was kind of a comforting experience also going into that world they were lovely actually i had no complaints but it, i didn't expect that i think another feature I, of is you know you get into a certain group like QAnon or or something yes. and you feel like oh now i'm kind of in the inner circle i really understand what's going on yes. aren't i special yes. and all these other people are just sheeple who are being duped by the mainstream media and they're they're blind and it gives you a sense of superiority or it aggrandizes your ego that you get a hit on that it's very seductive but it was it was an interesting it's like that with regular cults too Oh, My yeah. guru is the best guru, and and uh, we're also enlightened, and everybody else is subpar. <laughs> everybody wants to feel special, but we can all feel special in our own unique way. We don't need to belong to a group. I think there's stages, aren't there? There's being, belonging, becoming, and bliss. I think of life like that, and I think we go through those stages in our life and catch glimpses of bliss along the way. 
Groucho Marx said, I wouldn't want to join a club that would accept me as a member. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. <laughs> All righty. Well, you and I could go on for another two hours. but Oh, I love talking. Yeah. Oh, but you're just a gracious host. Thank you. Thank you. I love it. Thanks, Teresa. It's been a lot of fun. And uh, the people watching have remained fairly consistently high up in the 200 zone, despite all of our frivolity. Um, so <laughs> so uh, hopefully they found this entertaining. And if you just want to skip to the end and say, watch the Disney Pixar movie Soul, that says everything I want to say yeah. about life. Got to see there. that. Got to see Beautiful. that. Beautiful. You've got to. Please, please. I'd love your thoughts on it. It's where I'm at now, actually. It's wonderful. Cool. I think it's, I have to find out where where we can watch that. It's about finding meaning where you don't think you're going to find it. It's all about that, that meaning isn't found where we all think it is. Yeah, I've heard good things about it. Okay. Well, on that note, let's wrap it up, but we'll be in touch. Keep cranking out the books. Maybe we'll do another interview when you hit the 200 mark. Absolutely, I'm going. And you get to the thousand. Yeah, I'll get to the thousand interviews and get to the 200 books. Probably when you go to the other side, you'll be interviewing all the angels as well. I can see it. (laughs) I probably will. You know, this whole thing started, I was in this group and we met every Wednesday night for about three hours in a little living room in some guy's apartment. And we sometimes packed like 30 people into this little living room. And it was, we just had this spiritual discussion that went on for about three hours. And it was really kind of profound. And I really got a high off it. But I would kind of interview people. I would start probing people and asking them questions. And the ground rule was you're supposed to just talk about your own experience. And so the guy, the host (laughs) of the thing, kept saying, stop interviewing people. You're interviewing people. And finally, he was the one that pushed me to start this show. He said, you know, you should really be interviewing people. Why don't you start? (laughs) That's what you are. That's what you are. Natural curiosity. But curiosity is, again, is another foundation stone of spirituality for me. Curiosity is a really important part of the spiritual journey. Yeah, I think we both have that. And probably a lot of people who are watching this do too. It's like life is so fascinating and there are just uh, so many interesting things and people. And Once you dip your toe into this, you're never bored again because there's always more to learn, isn't there? And to discover Absolutely. Uh, in this journey. <laughs> yeah, boredom is like, I don't think I've felt bored for decades. I don't know what it feels like. Everything is fascinating. It is, including sleep and dreams. Absolutely. All right, let's stop rambling. Thank you, so, yeah. And thank you, Irie. I know she's, she's there. A, actually, thank she you. stepped and out of the room. but Please thank her for I me. I will. <laughs> and thank you to those uh, who've been listening or watching. I hope you enjoyed this one. Well done for sticking with us. Thank yeah, you. <laughs> thanks for hanging in there. We're both a couple of goofballs, obviously. Maybe it's just the goofballs stayed with us. Yes, thank you. Um, Thank you. Anyway, next week, I'm going to interview a guy named Rabbi Rami Shapiro. And I'm going to try an experiment with it because, you know, we sent out a form to the people that I'm going to interview. And we asked them, like, what do you want Rick to watch? What do you want Rick to read? And he said, I don't want you to watch anything or read anything. I want you to just know nothing about me. And we're going to have a conversation which is the way Larry King used to do it. Um, he didn't want to know anything about his guests. So I'll try that next week. I won't know anything about this guy. I can't tell you anything about him now. Rick, you're going to Google. You know you No, are. no, I'm going to resist. <laughs> I'm going to listen to other stuff all week and read other stuff. I have a no, lot to catch not. up on. You're going to Google. I predict. <laughs> well, I'm going to be a precog. You're going to Google. Oh, now I can't because you said I would. <laughs> anyway, that's what's happening next week. So thanks for listening or watching. And um, 
visit batgap.com and check out the menus and see what's there. You know, you can sign up to be notified by email of new interviews. You can subscribe to the audio podcast. And if you're watching on YouTube, which you probably are, please subscribe to the channel if you wish. And once you hit the subscribe button, a little bell pops up. And if you hit the bell also, then they, they really notify you when a new thing comes rather than just sporadically. Anyway, thanks, and we'll see you next week. Thanks, Teresa. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Talk to you later.